0: So it's not that the figurative is unhelpful. Of course, it's a way that we, metaphors are the ways that we figure out, as figurative language, to figure out the world. But it draws from the physical world. And I guess what I'm trying to help the reader understand is that God loves both. (laughs) As 1 John says it, we didn't just think that Jesus, you know, rose from the dead. We don't just think ideas that he is God. It's like we saw him. We heard Him, we touched Him, and even more decisive, we were seen by God. We were heard by God. We were touched, felt, held. And it's because He did all those things consistent with the way that God has been handling us with care from the very beginning, and will continue to handle us with care, and even though it's figurative language that He wipes the tears from our eyes,
1: that language doesn't come from nowhere. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. David Taylor is associate professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary and the author of several books, the most recent being A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship. In addition to a range of scholarly essays, he has written for the Washington Post, Image Journal, Theology Today, and Books and Culture, among other publications. An Anglican priest, he has lectured widely on the arts all over the world. In 2016, he produced a short film on the Psalms with Bono and Eugene Peterson. In this episode, David and I talk about the ways that the arts invite us to inhabit our bodies and through them to get a grasp of the world. We talk about what happens when we start to take scriptural and theological language of the five senses literally as well as metaphorically. And David tells us what the words entrainment and interactional synchrony mean. David Taylor, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit podcast today. I'm excited about your new book, Uh, A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship. Jonathan Rogers, it's great to be here. (laughs) I love Um, it. I'm excited.
0: You're my first. You're my first podcast on the book. Oh, really? Yeah, my maiden voyage. So this is probably going to be the best.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Please don't mess this up, David. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Give me a quick overview of the argument uh, that you're making in this book. Happily.
0: Uh, the argument that I'm trying to make in the book is that Christians throughout the centuries have been burdened with a host of bad ideas and bad attitudes towards the body, towards the physical body, particularly within the context of worship. Christians have feared the body, they have mistrusted the body, uh, they have suppressed the body, denigrated, made bodies invisible. Uh, they have called the body the prison house of the soul. Mm-hmm. At worst, they have tried to torture the body or transcend the body. And if you ask your average Christian, maybe in North America today, like, "Whoa, well, what do you think the purpose of the body is when we go to worship?" Uh, this would be a sort of a generic kind of answer. I would say, maybe at worst, your average Christian would say, "Well, our bodies are like this neutral thing; they're just mm-hmm. like a passive vessel that we just transport around the world." And when we come to do this thing called corporate worship, uh, their job is mainly to get out of the way so the real business of worship can take place in our hearts and minds. At worst, I would say there's a kind of distrust uh, of the bodies because of its potential threat Mm -hmm. against Mm-hmm. Uh, faithful worship. So in the book, I'm trying to argue against all fronts, uh, all kinds of <laughs> bad ideas and bad mm-hmm. attitudes, and bad behaviors in order to argue that the purpose of the body is to offer what only it can and must offer uh, to God in and uh, in, in worship because our bodies are these sites, these God-designed, God-graced sites where the positive and decisive work of the Holy Spirit takes place to form Christ-likeness in yeah. us. So that's the basic idea. And then I unpack it in like a, a you know a history of the body, theology of the body, Bible of the body, uh, art, artistic perspectives, scientific perspectives, ethical, then two chapters that are like the prescriptive use of the body, spontaneous,
1: yeah.
0: and then the last chapter really asking how exactly does it form Christ-likeness in us?
1: Yeah. Uh, One point of clarification. I mean, you you said, you know, there are all these bad ideas Christians have about the body, Yes. except the good ideas about the body come from the Christian tradition too. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, there's kind of maybe a retrieval project at work here, sort of rediscovering or bringing to the reader's attention the riches of the Christian tradition. Uh, Obviously, I'm trying to help readers to reread scripture. Uh, Mm -hmm. To see all the places that uh, our bodily life shows up. Uh, Like, for example, uh, one of the arguments I try to make is that uh, over against maybe these ideas that the Holy Spirit is really, at the end of the day, interested only in invisible, immaterial, interior kind of stuff. I'm going to make the case in the book that the Holy Spirit is all about materiality from Genesis 1 to Exodus to Psalm 104, to Isaiah 61, to Jesus's baptism, Pentecost, all the way. Holy Spirit is pro-physical, not extra-physical. But those kind of ideas kind of get lost in the wash, as it were, uh, alongside maybe like how Christians, Protestants, how they've read John 4, which is that phrase uh, to worship God in spirit and in truth. Mm -hmm. And spirit language in many Protestant settings has been read as descriptive of what happens inside human beings, sort of the soulish activities. And in the book, I basically say that is just a dead wrong understanding of that phrase in the context of John. And it has everything to do with how Jesus is describing the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to form this new life from above, right? That comes not from anything that we can manufacture or manipulate, but it's a gift. So even there in John, it's all about the body.
1: Wait, I, I, I'm i sorry. How is that all about the body? Can you clarify that? Because you just sort of talk about the spirit and, and aboveness, and now you're talking about the body.
0: Y- yes, uh, yes, indeed. So in, in one of the chapters, I have two chapters on biblical per- perspectives because I felt like there was a lot to unpack. Um, I de- dedicate a lot of real estate in the book to a rereading of... Uh, the Gospel of John in particular, this fourth chapter with this very famous uh, statement of Jesus, that the kind of worship that the Father seeks is that which is in spirit and in truth. Many interpreters, many Protestant interpreters have understood that phrase to describe something that happens in the interiority, the invisible interiority okay, yeah. of human beings. Mm-hmm. The argument that I make piggybacking on the work of a number of, of New Testament scholars, is that that language of spirit is actually descriptive of capital S, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh-huh. uh, which in the Gospel of John um, appears in euphemistic form as the work from above. Mm, okay. so that is It's basically saying throughout the Gospel of John, there's, there's something that is decisive and determinative that's taking place in the life and ministry of Jesus. You cannot make it happen. It is a gift that comes from outside of you. Um, and all throughout the gospel, you see how this gift of new life uh, occurs uh, in, in, you know, his his ministry and in his relationship with the disciples. But the bodily dimension shows up, for example, in the wedding of Cana.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It is very much sort of this expansive um, oh, economy of abundance that shows up in physical form of, you know, excessive wine. The feeding mm-hmm. of the 5,000. Yeah. yeah. Something that occurs from above. It's expansive. But it's, it's also kind of, very bodily. Very bodily. And all the way yeah. to the end of Jesus welcoming the touch of his body, the mm-hmm. breathing upon his disciples. Uh, scholars talk about that as kind of like Genesis language, uh, garden language, recreation kind of language. So in the book, I try to explain how that text in particular and the gospel as a whole has really very little interest in describing how it is that we can generate you know good true faithful worship in on, in our interiority in our invisible yeah, yeah, yeah. for ourselves not that our hearts don't matter obviously and our minds matter obviously because I do make that case but our bodies matter far more than we have often allowed yeah.
1: I um I think it's I think it's also in the book of John that I I love the the episode sorry about my dog barking um okay. I also right. love that episode where, um, you know, there's, there's the blind man and the disciples are trying to debate, you know, why is he blind? Is it, was he Who sinned? And, you know, they're having this theological discussion, and then Jesus, right. you know, spits in the mud. He makes right, he he spits in the dirt and makes a little mud and rubs it. I mean, that is so right. bodily and so earthy and so yeah. – um, It is. You know, he, inter- he interrupts this theological discussion <laughs> by <laughs> spitting in the mud, you know
0: yeah, and I, and the thing that's fascinating, and I try to unpack it a little bit in those in those two Bible chapters is it goes without saying that Jesus, as the Word of God as the second person of the Trinity, can, of course heal anybody he wishes merely by speaking. I mean, he could wow. do it merely by thinking, right? Yeah. He could do something that has no physical manifestation. Uh, and yet, <laughs> because it lies at the very character, of of God, He chooses willingly, lovingly, carefilledly to engage us in our bodies because that is how God has been you know on about from the very beginning, handling us with care.
1: Yeah. And uh, and so
0: yes, this that would be sort of this vivid episode where Jesus says, All right, let's do physical earthy stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um okay, you um, borrowing from uh Myra Rivera if I'm pronouncing her her, her uh-huh. first name right um you quote her as saying words about bodies create social relations yes and and then you say that that this sort of that observation which is you know not self-evident sure. um forms the you know sort of represents the goals for your book. I'm not yeah. quite sure I understand what that means so I'm glad I, I was able to ask you directly I, sure. Words about bodies create social relations. Yes. Tell me, tell me what that means.
0: Uh, so let me use two examples from like society, just like our you know our public world, and then I'll I'll use two examples from the world of corporate worship. The slogan "My body, my choice." Okay. Words, and they they are words about bodies, mm-hmm. and they are words that over the last four decades have generated. Like an entire way of being in the world that involves mm. social, political, legal, economic, educational, medical type, you know, apparatuses um, and th- that then dictate or inform how it is that, say, women or men may uh, think about and uh, regard their bodies. Yeah. Um, sort of on the on the premise that my body is my property. I am the exclusive property rights owner. Uh, mm-hmm. It belongs to me to do with as I please. Now, uh, curiously, ironically, a lot of Christians during the COVID era <laughs> yeah. that were opposed to vaccination mandates of one sort or another adopted that phrase, my body, yeah. my choice. And I think at root still sort of held on to this I think pernicious idea that our body is this property. Yeah, property of course is another um, uh, way, a, a bit of vocabulary <laughs> um, that has been used to describe bodies. That uh, a human body is a piece of property that can be sold, it can be rented, it can be pawned, mm-hmm. and that kind of language of body as property made it plausible to Christians in the modern era to believe that it was possible to trade the bodies of black men and women from Africa into the American kind of context. And, uh, and then not only made it possible, then it made it possible to live in a world where bodies, uh, the language of body as property could then be mapped onto a certain, I think, you know, pernicious reading of scripture. And then it makes a whole social world right, uh-huh. um, possible. Uh, a dastardly one, of course. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So in the book, I am going to argue against this language. I'm going to argue that Christians should get, get rid of that idea that our bodies are properties, uh-huh. that we own. They're gifts that we steward, and there's a communal dimension to them. Uh, they belong ultimately viscerally to Jesus Christ himself, uh, and so they're gifts. So those be like, like examples from the world at large, where yeah. words about bodies create social relations. Uh, systems right um entire sort of plausibility structures (laughs) okay two examples of words uh, that create social relations that are more directly tied to worship would be one uh the phrase boys don't cry okay it's a particularly american um invention and if if it's not an american invention we certainly trademarked it and turned it into a cottage industry and how it is that we can construe what it means to be like a real man and in the western history in general there is sort of this pattern of perception that men are uh, allegedly the rational creatures and women are the allegedly emotional creatures they're the ones that cry and they're definitely the ones um, that have bodies that uh, threaten to get out of control that would be the thinking right and so for centuries uh, you have <laughs> this uh way of thinking uh, that, that is articulated with l- language uh, that has informed uh ideas about men and women in the church, men and women in leadership in the church, Uh, whether it's permissible or desirable to express emotion in the church, Mm -hmm. whether you should ever allow yourself to cry in public in the church, or whether that's a distraction, A, or a sign of weakness, B, you know, at at worst. And uh, and in the book, I argue that Jesus, as the one who weeps openly, because that is like the, the true characterization of the vulnerable love of God, as well as, a true image of our humanity shows us uh, yeah, what it means to be truly human in a way that um, uh, men in particular, I think, need to hear that kind of word. But the damage that this kind of language has done to the body of Christ is uh, you know, incalculable at some level. The only one, other one I'll mention real quickly, it would be this idea that worship must be dignified. And it shows up in Protestant traditions, but it also shows up in the Catholic tradition. And there's an African theologian, his name is Elochuku Uzuku. And he has this marvelous book that he writes where he traces uh, sort of the physicality of the, the Church of Rome in the early centuries after Christianity was was legalized. And the culture of Rome at the time was the kind of culture that regarded restraint uh bodily restraint uh, economy of movement as as dignified decorous and then that got cemented uh mm-hmm. as like the real way that we ought to worship and then uh it was exported to the rest of the world and the argument he makes as an african theologian is that it was it proved to be very problematic mm-hmm. to let's say in this case catholics in the african context for whom like moving and dancing is like the real way to be human yeah um but you see it played out also in um in protestant contexts in different ways in the kind of maybe debates or um or or uh, you know more problematic damaging dynamics between i'm just going to make up two groups the presbyterians and the pentecostals like what does it mean to be really you know yeah. present and faithful and true to god in worship um so that would those would be kind of examples where words about bodies mm-hmm. you know shape social relations and in this case how we relate to one another and to God in the context of worship.
1: You uh, you say at one point that the the Spirit produces one body life, not in spite of our bodies, but in and through our bodies. Yes, uh, I love that observation. Uh, and 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 one, I think the context in which you say that is around um, the idea of of singing together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you introduced. Words I didn't know, but seem very helpful. Entrainment and interactional synchrony. Yes, sir. <laughs> this book is a little a little academic sometimes, David. Oh, come you. on, I mean that's not words. <laughs> but tell me about so you know, I, as I said, I couldn't. Ex- I'm not sure I could explain the word entrainment, but uh, sure, but sure. Here in your inaugural podcast for. for <laughs> For this book, you better here's your chance to to get good at explaining uh, these these words. Yes, sir. So Talk okay. about entrainment and what it has to do with singing together. Sure.
0: Okay. So let me back up and say again the the premise of this book is the Holy Spirit is pro physical, not you know extra physical or anti physical. Mm-hmm. The second thing that that I try to suggest to the reader, especially in the theology chapter is that it's important for us to see how intimately in, and integrally the language of corporate and corporeal are in the New uh-huh. Testament. Yeah, yeah. And we see that especially like First Corinthians 6.19, where uh, the, the body as a community is a temple mm-hmm. and the body that I have as an individual is also described as a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's, uh-huh. it's, it's the language of a house, like I am an ambulatory house of the presence and power of God. Yeah, So that's like one idea uh, that comes sort of into play uh, that sets up the, the chapter on the uh, science of, of singing. The other thing that I should mention is in the introduction, I talk about sort of this language of the two books of God that mm-hmm. um, is popular in certain, you know, eras of church history. One book of God being the Bible and the other book of God being nature or mm-hmm. the cosmos, the physical world. And that God is the author of, of both And so in this chapter on the sciences, I'm trying to say that in as much as God has designed our bodies to be certain ways in the world, then wouldn't it be amazing if we took advantage of the help of scientists to understand what it is that happens to our brains when we are in a physical place together, right? Which is, again, something I explore sort of on the digital side of things, sort of the challenges that many of us face during, you know, COVID tide. Uh, In my chapter on ethics, I I try to make sense of like, well, what what happens to our bodies then when we're, you know, dispersed and mediated through, you know, computers and such. But in the chapter on science, I say, well, you know, one one of the insights that um, scientists would offer us is showing how um, um, brains that fire together wire together. (laughs) And when we're in the same physical place and we're, let's say, singing What's happened? Scientists talk about the uh, the coupling of our neurons. It's like we get in sync with one another. So, entrainment is just a fancy term to describe how, let's say, my body's rhythm syncs up with another body's rhythm. And so that would be like uh, when we're singing a rousing hymn and we're tapping our feet at the same time, or You know, it's a it's a rousing praise song and our heads are bobbing
1: Mm. that
0: that's just sort of like our bodies are being sort of metronomically synced up with one another. The idea of interactional synchrony is just a fancy term to describe that phenomenon, but with the added component of what happens when we look at each other, when there's like a face to face dimension. And so um, scientists talk about sort of all these studies of mothers and babies. When the mother smiles, you know the baby smiles and the mother frowns, baby frowns and that would be an example of that. Um, like a jazz improv group like looking at each other, giving each other you know quick glances, a knowing look to say, okay, we're gonna go this way or that way. And in the context of worship would be like uh, a choir that's really attentively looking at the, the director or even at one another or at the congregation. And the the mirroring that takes place in our seeing each other is actually wiring our brains in a certain way that is forging these bonds, these like social bonds or or fellow feeling is what they call it, being felt by others. And um, so the point that I make in that chapter is that God has designed our brains and bodies to experience certain tethering sort of dynamics, um, uh, uh, deepening uh, our sense of being knit together through what we do with our bodies in a common physical space. And, uh, and and the, you know, our response to that is on the one hand to say, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know that. And then the other response is maybe, well, gosh, if that's the case, then how can we like um, steward and tend to that good work and how how are, our, for example, our seating arrangements fighting against our ability to be inclined towards one another bodily so that our hearts and our minds and our lives can be inclined towards one another? So that's the
1: yeah. idea. And I, I love this. You know, to return to your idea earlier, corporate worship is corporeal worship.
0: It is corporeal. Mm-hmm.
1: Fundamental. And, um uh, worship that's mediated through a screen or, or you know, there's well that, that's I, I realize that can be controversial too i mean sure. there, there are people for whom being able to to, to yes. who physically can't get to a, a place exactly. of worship and therefore a screen right. is, is a right. uh, a big blessing yeah. for them yeah uh-huh. and,
0: and in my my chapter on the on ethics i focus on uh, the bodies of those with disabilities uh i focus kind of like multicultural multi-ethnic worship and digital type issues to try to offer some wisdom to say things are complicated mm-hmm. they're contentious but i think there is a way forward a wise a life-wise you know a life-giving wise way forward for us to see that digital technologies are a gift Th- mm-hmm. there's no doubt about it and we welcome those gifts and we discern ways in which they can offer positive you know, formation and, and the work of Christ, you know, forming Christ's likeness in us. But at the same time, I think we want to avoid it, so extreme positions or extreme statements on it. Yeah. And so that, that's the aim of that
1: chapter. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We need to get to the some questions that are more obviously and directly related to creative yes, sir. creativity and, and, and writing and, and art. Yeah. Um. So, I want you to uh, expand, if you will, on this sentence, which I think is is um, uh, really great and also not self-evident. You say yeah. in the appeal to the senses, ascent- in the appeal to the senses, the arts invite us to inhabit our bodies and through them to get a grasp of the world. So the yeah. art um, invites us to inhabit our bodies, and in and, and that is our uh, another way of connecting to the world in which we live. Yes, I think this is not self-evident because sometimes we think of art as you know there, there's the language of sort of <clears throat> art somehow you know being transcendent or raising us up to <laughs> you know wh- whatever right. you know and and you're right. uh, and and uh, you you cite joseph conrad right. as saying all art is about the senses right it's right. it's about the the five senses yeah starts there at least right that's the raw material mm-hmm. um O'Connor connor would certainly certainly uh, agreement <laughs> that, that whatever it is that you're wanting sure. to whatever big ideas you want to talk about yes. you're a raw material right you know by by choosing to write fiction for instance mm-hmm. you are uh you are giving up the the right to speak directly to these things and and you know to, to the right. big ideas and rather you're limiting yourself to the physical facts of the world yeah <clears throat> um so um tell me about that this idea yeah. that, that it's uh, art invites us to inhabit our bodies
0: yeah it i have one chapter obviously in this book on the arts in a previous book glimpses of the new creation it's all about the arts and the argument i make there as i do in this chapter is that the as i see it that the arts invite us into an intentional and intensive experience of the aesthetic dimension of our humanity By which I mean the imagination, the emotions, the senses, and the ways in which we use metaphor to figure out the world. As it relates to our bodies, I would say, well, let's take uh, an idea that's common in the Psalms. It's common in Leviticus. It's common in Paul's writings that the presence of the Lord is fragrant. Yeah. And I could preach a sermon. And I could describe it in as much detail as possible, but there's something very different that happens if I arrange the entire sanctuary with flowers, like Mm. real flowers, (laughs) fresh (laughs) flowers, right? Or uh, in the case of, you know, let's say Anglo-Catholic worship, Eastern Orthodox worship, if the room is sensed, you know, with incense, with frankincense. Which has multiple meanings and i explore that in the science chapter as well but that would be an example of how a medium of art let's say uh, uh, the, the beautiful arrangement of flowers mm-hmm. is a direct appeal to our olfactory sense it's it's <laughs> it's a way of saying if you really want to understand what it means for the lord's presence to be fragrant you actually have to have an embodied experience at some point in your right. life to know what fragrance actually means intelligently right. it's like I can tell you all the chemical properties and the history of chocolate, but if I never actually let you taste it, do you know, quote unquote, no chocolate, right? And that would be like maybe a similar idea with like God welcomes our laments, which I hope lots of sermons and lots of books will be forever and ever, uh, you know, preached and, and written. But if a congregation, <laughs> if, if you happen to be a part of a congregation that during Lent might have a performance of one of the movements of Mozart's Requiem, that's a way to get you on the inside. That's a way for your body to thrum with musical <laughs> notes that function like a metaphor. Like is yeah. lament literally the Requiem? No. The Requiem is as if a form mm-hmm. or manifestation of lament, which comes to us at a different register than like Porter's Gate music, like its album, uh, the, the, the lament songs. It was, mm-hmm. you know, the album, uh, which has a different sort of, idea of lament at work in musical tone, which would be very different from like the Irish experience of keening, which is that way, you know? Um, So if you give the opportunity to a congregation to enter in either to witness uh, or to participate in these songs of lament, well, then you begin to feel uh, not only a sense of like sympathy that you have music coming alongside of you and, and, and uh, naming and validating your your uh, your feelings of, of grief or sadness, but also, as I write about the book, directing them in the direction of what I call faithful feelings. That is to say, uh, we don't want to get stuck in our grief. We don't want to become self-indulgent in our grief, not just you know suppress them. The, the other extreme would be to indulge them. But we want our griefs to lead, a, lead us to healing and wholeness. And that ideally is what the best art does over time. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of idea I think I try to explore in that
1: too. And when you say faithful feeling, you mean feeling about the the world in some way, the way God feels about the world. It's
0: Absolutely. It would be sort of this idea that sort of at the, like, the divine level, the theological level, faithful feelings is enabling us to be attuned to the heart of God. It's enabling us to have our feelings ordered to the kind of feelings that Jesus himself felt. And it's... Enabling our feelings to be be, um, always at the ready to the work of the Holy Spirit to Mm -hmm. form, you know, the life of God in us. At like more of the human sort of level, I'm talking about emotional health and Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence and neighbor love as acts of sympathy and empathy. That is, you should feel this even though you don't. Yeah. Um, or yeah. you should feel more of this when you feel very little um, sympathy for a person who's very different from you, or who drives you crazy, or who's yeah. on the opposite side of some kind of line. So yeah. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> you at one point you cite Jeremy Begbie talking mm-hmm. about um, he's about music, but he could have been talking about any art form. He said it helps us discover things that we could feel, yes. but we've never felt before. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that is. Uh, just a a really helpful way of thinking about what art is good for.
0: Yeah. and I mean, a very, well, I think a very uh, common or or a familiar work of art to many, let's just say, in the habit world, (laughs) or the Rapparuma would be Matthias Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece, which is a triptych um, created in the early 1500s for the chapel uh, of the Monastery of St. Anthony, which is kind of like a a hospital for people with skin diseases. And Matthias Grunewald creates this painting. It's a triptych. In the centerpiece, it's Christ with lesions on his body. And so whenever a patient there went to the chapel to worship, they gazed upon one who was represented to them as a sympathetic priest. Mm it's not an abstract god it's not a distant god it's not an unfeeling god it's not a perfectly idealized beautified polished you know photoshopped god this is a god that has a body that is like yours and boy does he welcome you and boy does yeah. intern draw near to you so that would be sort of a, I i think just a, a, a gorgeous sort of example of how art can come into a space and enable us to feel rightly about God yeah. and enable us to receive rightly the feeling of God towards us the, the, the one who intercedes with us with groans.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so you know that would be an example but I think you know today there are other you know places where that can take place as well.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> um you you one thing I, I was very aware of as I was reading through your book is all the all the ways that we speak we use metaphors related to the five senses to talk mm-hmm. about Christian truth, um, and I mean, it, at one point you talk about in worship we sense and are sensitized to the grace mm-hmm. of God. Mm-hmm. Both "sense" and "sensitized" are obviously sensory words. Yeah, I would normally think of that as being a metaphorical use of that word. Mm-hmm. Um. You say we get a feel for the story. You know, feel is another sensory word. Right. right. Uh, we behold God's love. We taste and see the Lord is good. We're used to thinking of these as metaphorical uses of the mm-hmm. senses. Mm-hmm. And you're making a case that, uh, sure, they're metaphorical. Right. But they're not just metaphorical. <clears throat> right.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, I think, a case I, I, I try to unpack in the second chapter, which is like this sort of like a, a a landscape or a dictionary like like how do we think about all this body stuff and I, I i rely on the work of a guy named mark johnson a philosopher who writes a book one marvelous book not easy reading but really really important uh, the meaning of the body and he helps us understand how all this language like to, to feel and to you know to, to feel sensitized and i feel up i feel down it doesn't come from nowhere it actually comes yeah. from the physical world and so there's something in, uh, intelligible about um, the language of I feel up because when we feel up, our bodies have a lightness. They they rise, They're light on the toes. You know, there's a yeah. brightness to the complexion. Whereas when bodies feel low, it's a sense at which gravity is pulling us down. Things are yeah. sagging, drooping, right? Yeah. So it's not that the figurative is unhelpful. Of course, it's a way that we metaphors are the ways that we figure out is figurative language to figure out the world. Mm -hmm. But it draws from the physical world. And I guess what I'm trying to help the reader understand is that God loves both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Done a great job of really attending to the fact that, as first John says it, we didn't we didn't just think that Jesus, you know, rose from the dead. We don't (laughs) just think ideas that he is God. It's like we saw him we yeah. heard him we touched him and even more decisive even though it doesn't show up in that you know passage we were seen by god we were heard by god we were touched mm. felt held and it's because he did all those things consistent with the way that god has been handling us with care from the very beginning and will continue to handle us with care and even those figurative language that he wipes the tears from our eyes and that language doesn't come from nowhere. Yeah, is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is in the business of literally wiping tears so that we can also feel that the tears of our hearts and the sorrows of our minds and our broken families have you know a sympathetic priest that can take care of them. So the point I'm making is obviously not that we get rid of that language, but that we understand that it comes from the physical world that God so loves, and that bodily practice and worship or artistic practice and worship can be a way of reacquainting ourselves. So as I mm-hmm. say, like, we can preach about baptized imaginations, and I hope lots of sermons are preached, but give people something to look at with their eyes and trust yeah. that in the looking at it, Sunday after Sunday, year after year, our our imaginations and our, the you know, our mental apparatuses and then how we feel about the world is going to be transformed with every sense of, of ours.
1: So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love that uh uh John Updike's uh, seven stanzas at Easter where he says, Let us not mock God with metaphor. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> if, if if he didn't physically rise, right. if, if right. The, the molecules didn't re knit or whatever the whatever language he used, then what are we talking about? And I, I think this episode is going to be released on Holy Week. Yeah. And uh and so you know, uh, I will probably be listening to your Andrew <laughs> Peterson's song, His Heartbeats, you know, yes. where he talks about the the, the blood that made us and okay, I'm not going to quote this right but the 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 blood that reconciles to God is now pumping through his veins again yes. right it's it's absolutely. both this this yeah. you know it has this um theological even you might say symbolic meaning sure but it's also it's it's blood that's being pumped through absolutely. a body that is <laughs> that is seated at the right hand of God now you know
0: absolutely absolutely and that blood. Uh, sometimes boils in our bodies Mm. and sometimes gets excited in our bodies. And sometimes it causes us to love our neighbors with the sacrificial love of Jesus. And sometimes that blood causes us to hate our neighbors. Mm. And so how can our bodily practices in worship be a part of the spirit's work of reforming, transforming, you know, bit by bit, you know, retraining our most fundamental instincts to love Mm. As you said, because it is with our hands that we help or hurt, right? I mean, yeah, the gospel is fundamentally a material thing, in in the sense that like there is no version of the gospel that doesn't show up in some kind of creaturely, physical, tangible form. And again, not because our hearts don't matter, not because our minds don't matter. Obviously, those things matter, but we are we are and forever will be bodily creatures.
1: Yeah. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) All right. Hey, last question. Uh, I I probably asked you this last time you were on this podcast. I'm going to ask you again, because the answer may be different. Who are Mm. the writers who are making you want to write these days?
0: Okay. Last time you asked me this question, I actually was not familiar with this. And then I thought to myself, dang it, who should I say? So I said Eugene Peterson, which is not a bad answer, but I did have a chance to think about it this time. (laughs) I thought, you know what? There are actually a few people that um get me super excited to write one is Karl Barth, the uh the swiss really? theologian. okay and uh what i love about his theology is it, it's so joyful it's infectious uh. and it makes me want to go write better theology myself <laughs> um i love malcolm guy and i know a lot of rabbit room people love him but yeah. i just love the way that he is trained as a theologian but Gosh, he has this beautiful musical ear and his language yeah. just, it sings and it makes me want to find the musical textures of language as well. And then lastly, I would say, I, I love science fiction and uh, two of my favorite writers are Margaret Atwood and mm. Octavia Butler. Uh huh. And when I read their novels, I mean, my imagination just churns and burns and I'm like, I must go do something creative <laughs> after reading it. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the writers.
1: Well, great. Well, David Taylor, thank you. Thank you, sir. Been a lot of fun. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you. Uh, thanks for this book. I think it's going to do a lot of people a lot of good.
0: I hope so. Thanks, John. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com/donate.